Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the book of Acts, the very first chapter? And we're going to read the first 11 verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, he was eating with them. Uh, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. It was very common in the, at the time the New Testament, most of the documents of the New Testament were written. Um, the way you wrote things down was on a scroll. As a matter of fact, books like we know them will actually kind of be popularized and get their start in the church um, because they're dealing with such large texts that scrolls become kind of unmanageable because you can, after a scroll gets to be so long, it just becomes this giant heavy thing that you can't really lug around with you. Um, you know, you can imagine the preacher coming into town carrying something like a log, like a lumberjack. It's not, not very convenient. So um, when it's, we're talking about in the former book, we have two, the theory is there are two, were two scrolls written by Luke, um, this companion of Paul. One is the Gospel of Luke, um, and he'll, he'll do an introduction very much like this, and the other is Acts, and it seems like they were both written to occupy about as much material as you could put reasonably fit on a scroll, and he, he broke it into two, and the first part we know as the Gospel of Luke, that's when he says, in my former book, Theophilus, and the second part is Acts. Now, traditionally, the traditional name we get Acts, we read it as the Acts of the Apostles. That's the traditional name usually associated with the book, but it's really the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. It's very much uh, Luke wants to link those two things together. That's why he t says that in the former book, he talked about all Jesus began to do and teach, because he sees this whole continuing thing as more of what Jesus is doing and teaching, even though for most of it, he's not going to be bodily present, but he still sees this as the work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. We don't 
know 100% the occasion for Luke writing uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, but one theory that has some things to recommend it is that it may have been written as Paul was getting ready to have his case heard before the imperial court. This might have been Luke kind of writing a brief for the court. Um, in, in the original, his, his addressing of Theophilus, he says, most excellent Theophilus, which is actually a technical title you would give to somebody in authority in the Roman Empire. So there's this idea that this person, Theophilus, might be somebody in authority. Now, we do know that from his name, he's, he's probably sympathetic because Theophilus means lover of God. So Luke is writing this book to somebody who is a lover of God, and he's kind of setting out the story about Jesus and then about what Jesus is continuing to do through his apostles. And in the book of Acts, you'll see him portraying actually Roman officials in, in a very generally positive light. Most of the time we uh, encounter Roman officials in the book of Acts, they're either going to be neutral towards the gospel or friendly towards the gospel. You're going to have the centurions who exercise faith. You're going to have Roman governors of provinces reacting favorably to the gospel. And this would make sense if this was being written as a brief to the court. It would be Luke saying, see, we've, we've existed up till now and never caused a problem. Uh, all the officials that have come, come up across the way up until this point uh, have been favorable to it. We haven't done anything illegal. Because that was some of the charges that were beginning to be spread about the early church is, you know, well, these, are, these are really villains. These aren't good people. Um, and some of that was because it was kind of some secrecy they, were, they kind of kept to themselves. They didn't go to the public celebrations and sacrifices. That's a little weird. And um, they always talked about loving each other and greeting each other with a holy kiss. They're probably some weird orgy cult. Um, they talk about eating flesh. I mean, they're cannibals. You know, there were all these rumors circulating about the church. So it would make sense that you'd want a document to say, no, no, really, this, this is who we are. This is all we do. Uh, and it's interesting that for the first 300 years of the church, until it becomes a, a legally recognized uh, religion in the Roman Empire, Christians are always having to set forth this case again. You, when you read the writings of the early church that are addressed, there's a lot of um, what are called apologias that are actually addressed to Roman governors and emperors, and they're all, hey, this is what we do. We, just, we gather together on Sundays, we sing songs, we pray for the public good, and then we have a meal together. That's all we really do. So, so this is very much in that pattern, and that's probably why this was written. So here in the first chapter, he's, he's saying, look, I, I told you about what Jesus began to do, so now I'm going to tell you what, what he continued to do. And first thing, he's, he brings it back to the resurrection. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's almost amusing. Can you imagine going, I mean, the resurrection is, is just, I mean, then as now would be a very reality, it would, it would change your entire view of reality. Sometimes I think that as modern Christians, we talk about the resurrection 
but because we aren't face-to-face with a resurrected Jesus, it doesn't slap us in the face the way it would have those first disciples. And um, in the not, not so much nowadays, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, it used to be uh, very fashionable for opponents of, of the gospel to say, well, you know, back in those days, they had all these weird beliefs, you know, and so it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been anything for them to tell stories about resurrection. No, they knew dead people didn't get back out of the grave. Everybody back then knew that. You know, um, you could go to Plato or, or Roman philosophers like Seneca. People knew when you're dead, you're dead. They weren't uh, overly superstitious about bodily resurrection. So that's really something shocking. It is a, a signal, a, a singular uh, claim. So he talks here about Jesus giving many convincing proofs that he's alive. Now, I find that a little funny, but I understand it because resurrection is such a weird thing. But can you imagine, Jesus, you're back to your disciples. And you're like, no, really, I'm, I'm alive. This is, this is me. And, you know, I don't know if the disciples were going, well, we must have had some bad fish because <laughs> obviously we're hallucinating. So Jesus really had to convince them, and we know he did it. He's like, hey, put, put your hand in the wound. Here, give me a fish to eat. I'll show you I'm alive. So that first thing was he had to establish that he was really alive, and it was really him. Uh, We know that something about the nature of the resurrection made it so that at first, some of the disciples who'd been with him didn't even recognize him. That may have been because you're not expecting to see him again. You know, you saw him die. So whoever this is, that guy looks an awful lot like Jesus, but I saw Jesus crucified, so that can't be Jesus. So he had to convince them he's alive and he is who he is. But then he stayed with them 40 days. And it's interesting because of all the accounts we have of the life and preaching of Jesus, for this last 40 days, we pretty much just get little sketches that he, he walked them through scriptures and showed why scriptures, showed how the scriptures showed that the Messiah had to suffer and die because that is certainly not the Messiah the church was looking for at that point. And we'll see an echo of that just here in a second. And he told them to wait. But other than that, we don't really know a lot about those 40 days. And that's, I mean, to me, that's like, Jesus just came back from the dead. That's got to be really cool. And But apparently, all we need to really know is that he did um, rise from the dead and he resumed teaching and working through the church. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave this command, don't leave, leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when his disciples were mourning, when he was telling them that he was going to be crucified and taken from them, they were sad and mourning. And he said, don't, don't do that. It's, it's actually better for you that I go away, because if I go away, I can send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and he'll fulfill everything I intend to do through you. So he was, he was making the point that it's actually good for the church that he withdraws and lets the Holy Spirit act for a while. They still don't quite understand it because they gather around him and said, Lord, at this time, are are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still seeing the Messiah 
in terms of this person that is going to come and restore Israel's political fortunes. They're thinking of another David. They're thinking of somebody that's going to get this earthly kingdom back online as the way that God is going to continue his project of bringing redemption to creation. But that's not what God's doing. He's no longer, he did start out working through one man and through that man a family and through that family a nation, but now he's expanding beyond that nation and he's saying, we're going into the world. He's saying, power's going to come upon you. And I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem here, yes, to the kingdom I started, to the family I initially called to bring redemption to the world. You're going to witness to them. You're going to witness to Abraham's descendants in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go out throughout the entire, entirety of Judea. We're going to get all those, uh, all those Jews that are still in the land, and we're going, to, we're going to tell them about this. We're going to go to Samaria. You know those people you don't like and that you consider your, your distant hillbilly cousins, you're going to go to them and tell them to. And then you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to talk about this program that I've started. You're going to talk about the fact that there was a good God who created a good creation and that man through his rebellion broke fellowship with God, but God was not content to rest in that, but work, is working actively to redeem and bring all things back back to himself. You're going to go. You're going to go to the ends of the world and you're going to tell them that. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be before judges and kings and governors. And then after he tells them that, he's taken up into, a into the heavens, into a cloud. Now that, because we're not first century Jews, we're going to read that and we're going to go, oh, He's taken into a cloud, like he goes up into heaven and there's a cloud, and you know, kind of a detail. But that cloud, to a first century Jew, is going to talk about God's glory. Um, when they talk about the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple, it's a cloud. And in specifically, specifically, Jesus, throughout his life, one of his favorite terms to talk about himself was son of man. And that goes back to... Uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, and in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and he sees a vision of many beasts, and the beasts having power, but at the end of all that, he says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That coming on the clouds is what is intended here when they talk about that. Jesus himself, when he was before the high priests, he said, hey, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and seated at the right hand of the Father. He was directly appealing to this, and that's kind of where the narrative in Acts is talking. So the disciples are sitting there, kind of looking up into the sky. I don't know what they're thinking at that point. Like, wow, he died. He rose again. Now he's, he's gone. You know, they're probably a little confused. And so suddenly there's two men in white standing next to them. And they're like, hey, guys, what are you staring up into the sky for? Don't worry about that. He's coming back. You won't miss him. He's going to come back the same way he went. But he gave you instructions before he left. He told you what to do. 
This is still the position we're in as a church. Now, not quite, because they had to wait for Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, and we're a little farther on there, but we are in this present time after Jesus' death and resurrection, after Jesus destroying the work of the devil and being taken into heaven, but before he's come back. And it's been a long time. We always hear people talking about, oh, we're in the last days, and looking at the news and trying to, trying to figure things out. Well, ever since Jesus was taken back into heaven, it's biblically been the last days. So yes, we are living in the last days, but that could be a very long time. And it's sometimes difficult to live in that time. This, especially every year, it seems like more things, there are more challenges. We have pandemics. We have people on both sides, sad, sadly, even in the church, being rude and getting meaner. And, and it can, you can very much want to cry out in your, in your heart, how long, Lord? How long till you come again? And that's been the cry of the church for a very long time. How long, Lord? Was the cry of the nation of Israel, how long, Lord, until you come, till you restore things? Because in this world, one of the promises we have is in this world you'll have trials. And we do. And we, can, we pray desperately, come, Lord Jesus. But even though Jesus was bodily taken into heaven, he didn't leave the world. He is still present in the world. And he's present in the world through us, through his church. You know, we have many, many promises about how we are to be in the world. Uh, in 1 John, when John talks about being acting in love, he says, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And then he finishes by saying, in this world, we are like Jesus. So when we, when we act in that love, when we dwell in the power of the Holy Spirit and act out of that love and do the things Jesus did, we are still Jesus' presence in the world. You know, I was talking with my wife because there are just so many discouraging things in the world. And unfortunately, now we have social media, which the very mature among us know we can turn off and don't have to look at. I'm not one of those mature people. I'm one of those people that has to go, did, did they like my picture of my doggy? Um, so I'm, something I'm working on, but I, I still go back to it. And that will always put in your face the very worst aspects of the world. And so I'll talk with my wife about it, and I'm like, oh, just how long? Lord Jesus, come. And then God will speak to my heart, and he's like, well, through the church, I'm already there. And I have to start thinking, okay, what are the things I would like, that I would hope would happen when Jesus comes again? How do I think Jesus would make things better? What, what would the world look like if Jesus was back again? And then I think, well, okay, I'm his hands and feet right now. What can I do? Because right now Jesus is still present. He's present through us. What can we do? What sort of things 
should we be about? Because we are, we are the presence of Jesus in the world right now. We are on mission. We are on mission to witness to him, to talk about this redemption that's to come, that's, that's come, but also to do the sorts of things that Jesus did. You know, God wants us to be people that set captives free. There are people all around us every day who are in all sorts of bondage, and they need a touch from God to liberate them. And sometimes that touch from God is just us coming alongside and saying, what's going on? And that's, that's still our mission. While we're still here, that is our mission, to be that touch of God to our neighbors, to our friends, to our enemies. One of the, the very nasty tendencies that social media uh, creates is it, it distances us from people so you can relate to those people more as an idea than as a person, and that can cause people to be unkind. We are never called to be unkind as Christians. Our, our gentleness and reasonableness is to be evident to all. Now, we can call out behaviors. We can say, this is probably not a beneficial behavior, but we don't judge the people. We judge actions, but we, you know, that's it's one of those things as Christians. We are called to use judgment, but we're called not to judge. Well, the way you do that is you judge actions, but you never judge a person. And it's so easy to forget and in the, the heat of a moment do a post or say something about, you know, you sheep, you know, wake up sheep. Once you use a derogatory term, but you, you've lost it. Um, Jesus said, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. I don't think we think about that as in the modern day. It's just too easy to get caught up in things. But it's like people are either our friends who don't know it yet, or they're our, our enemies, but either way, we're called to love and pray for them. And... Uh, that's, that's what we're called to do. Until Christ comes back, while we're here, we are still the body of Christ reaching out to a hurting world and taking care of it. So amidst all the bad news, amidst all the sadness, that's where we're called to be. And it can be very easy when you see, especially most of us grew up in a world that, that kind of assumed Christian values. And it, it, it doesn't anymore. And it can start to feel like, uh-oh, what are we in? And we can feel, you start hearing the language of, oh, we're remnant. We're just, we're holding on until Christ comes back. You know, we're the, the faithful remnant. But that's never what we were called to be. We're not, we're the advanced guard of, of, of the king's army coming back and setting everything right. We're not just holding on. We are his presence. We are his light in the world right now. That's our job. And, you know, Peter talks about it wonderfully because we'll, we'll be saying, how long, God? How long? And Peter says, no, 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 God's not slow. God's not slow like you think. And he's giving space because he wants as many people as possible to come into the family. And our job is to be bringing them into the family. And sometimes we can get scared and, and get defensive but that's why Paul talks about, he's like, hey, reckon yourselves dead. 
you're already dead with Christ. You know, if you're already dead, it's okay because we know there's resurrection, so we don't have to worry about that part of it. And if we know we're already dead to the world and are, we're just here now as the hands and feet of Christ, we'll worry less about what the changes in the world mean as far as it inconveniences us and think more about the hurts and damage in the world as opportunity for us to shine the light and the love of Christ on the problems of the world. Because Jesus was taken up into heaven bodily. He's not here with us bodily. But wherever two or more of us are gathered in his name, he's there in our midst. And we're still on mission from God. We're still supposed to be his witnesses until the end of the, until the, end of the age. And we, we live in tough times, but the church has always done very well in tough times. The fastest the church ever grew was in the, those first 300 years when it was illegal to be a Christian and you could be dragged and thrown to the lions for being a Christian. And the church flourished. Uh, the early church father, Tertullian, put it best when he said, hey, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, and you find that time and time again in the history. You find the church is being persecuted and Christians are being put to death. And the average everyday Romans that are looking on and seeing it are going, wow, those people, they're not even scared. You know, they're still being kind. They're not, they're not hurling insults back at us. They're really different. And you, you actually have accounts at trials where they'll put a Christian to death and then somebody in the crowd will go, well, that guy was right. And they'll haul him down and put him to death. And somebody else in the crowd will go, you know, these, something's going on here. And, and you have a, a revival that you know, leads to martyrdom. But, it, it, but the church grows through that. Right now, the fastest evangelizing nation on the face of the earth is China. This is, this is not a place where it is easy to be a Christian. You know, we, we can get upset when we have things that we feel impinge on our faith, when, you know, gatherings over a certain size are, are curtailed. That is inconvenient as a church. It does affect the life of the church because part of the life of the church is gathering together as a group. But it's a lot better than the secret police hauling you away in the middle of the night because you went to church. But the church flourishes in that kind of an environment because that's actually where we're called to operate. We are called to be witnesses until he comes back because we're, we're still Christ's presence in the world. And uh, Paul in Colossians puts it, he says that he has chosen to make known among the, among the world the glorious riches of his majesty and that glorious riches is Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. So I would just encourage you, the darker the times, the brighter the light shines, and we're the light. We know our story. We know the ending. We have nothing to be afraid of. It is difficult being in the middle time where Christ has come. He's won his victory, but it isn't fully finished yet, and he's not present with us. But that's just where we're called to operate. That is what we were made for. If you're here now, if you're alive now, God knew you would be alive now. This isn't a surprise to him. Every one of us 
is made for the times we're in. We are God's vessels to reach the world we're in. And if it's inconvenient and if it's scary, just take comfort in the fact that God knew you would be here, God equipped you to be here, God intended you to be here, and God empowers you to be here.